and welcome back to the Sports Map Podcast. My name's Nick Kane, and this is the podcast that we're talking all things sports medicine, physiotherapy, rehabilitation, and return to performance. Today's chat will be with Brady Green on car strain injuries. Uh, yeah, before we jump into today's chat with Brady, we've got some huge news, and that is that we're bringing Edna King out to Melbourne for three courses the end of January. So Edna King, for those that don't know Edna, he is the head of elite performance and development at Aspitar uh, Sports Medicine Centre and has previously been at the Sports Surgery Clinic in Dublin and he has done an extensive amount of research in both the ACL and groin and he is a go-to point for any of the best athletes across the world for that second opinion and some really uh, close coaching and rehabilitation. So he's certainly one of the best out there. Uh, feel free to jump back to some previous podcast episodes with Edna that we did to learn a little bit more around his approach. Uh, but as I said, it will be a jam-packed week out here in Melbourne. Uh, the 27th and the 28th of January will be ACL rehab and return to play decision making. The 29th and the 30th will be the athletic groin pain. And the 2nd and the 3rd of February will be a course on chronic and recurrent lower limb muscle and tendon injuries. So super excited for all courses, actually super excited for that last one, which is a brand new course, which is gonna cover off on all those injuries that just don't seem to get better. So really looking forward to the insight on that. It's gonna be phenomenal. Um, all the courses are really practical. We had him out uh, three or four years ago and, and the people said who attended that um, they were the best course they've been to. Highly practical. Um, really changes the way you probably see things and, and manage your different injuries. So the courses are gonna be kept low numbers, so they will sell out. So we need to, um, get people need to get in quick to, to lock, their, lock their spot away. At this stage, he's only gonna be in Melbourne on this trip. So for those uh, East Coast or Adelaide or even Perth, uh, we recommend hopefully you can, you can get over via a flight and attend these courses. So super pumped to have Edna out. And of course, we have already announced that the great Jordan Meneguccia will be here in Melbourne and Sydney. Jordan is one of the world's leading clinicians in hamstring injuries uh, and has done extensive research on the topic. Uh, these courses are one-day masterclass events uh, and, and it's all new all new content. He has been out here a few years ago as well and uh, some brand new content coming, including his screening approaches. He's approached to some complex injuries like T-junction injuries and tendon-based uh, hamstring injuries, uh, his take on running mechanics and the lumbar pelvic control, and of course his approach to uh, rehabilitation and his methodology around that. Lots of workshops with Jordan um, in these in these events. As I said, they're one-day courses at the moment. That's the 25th of February in Melbourne, uh, but we are, that is just about sold out, so we're set to announce a brand new course date on the 26th. Uh, to ensure people can actually get in to see him. Again, low numbers in each course, so need to get in early. Then we'll be heading to Sydney uh, for a course at Athletes Authority on the 4th of February. So be sure to check that out if you're certainly living a little bit more north on the eastern seaboard of Australia. Um, he's only he's very rarely out, very rarely does courses, Jordan, so it's certainly not one you want to miss if you're involved in any aspects of hamstring injuries. So again, we cannot wait for that, and so far, setting up your 2003 CPD with Edna and Jordan. I think that's all you'd need to do for the full year and I don't think you'll find uh, some better live face-to-face -face CPD that's gonna be happening anywhere in Australia, if not abroad um, in early 2023. And of course, 
we uh, cannot go past speaking about our, our masterclass platform that is just growing in popularity and growing in content. Uh, at the moment, one of the brand new ones just to come out is ankle inversion injuries with the Australian Boomers lead physio, David Hillard, uh, which is a great take through some of his assessments, differential diagnosis, stage rehabilitation. Uh, so I really enjoyed his approach uh, and systematic thoughts uh, into, into that. It's also got one of the um, Sydney Kings basketball players there uh, taking us through those rehab progressions, so top quality stuff. Uh, other recent ones include Andrew Mosler, which was just a, a masterclass on groin rehabilitation. And obviously prior to that, we had Josh here and Mark Scholes do a masterclass on the painful hip, which more focused around the assessment um, side of that hip and the hip pain. Uh, Carmel Bowen, prior to that on traumatic hand, hand injuries, um, was a really important one to stay on top of. And obviously plenty of other great content. We've had some raving reviews on Stu Imer's Liz Frank Masterclass, Ebony Rio's Persisting Pain, and of course, Craig Purdom. Uh, and moving forward into early 2023, you'll find some masterclasses coming up on rotator cuff injuries in the tennis athlete, lumbar bone stress injuries with prior uh, head physio at the Australian Cricketing, Alex Contouris, and the contact shoulder with Hamish McCauley. So all, if you sign up and, and become a member, you get access to all these masterclass videos, each with their own certificate for all your CPD record keeping. Uh, so it's pretty much all your CPD in one place that all you need for it throughout the whole year. And at the moment, you can still sign up for a free seven day trial just to check it out, get a feel and see if you really like that content coming through. So no loss in having a look. Okay, and our guest today in Brady Green. Brady holds a PhD in calf strain injuries from La Trobe University. Uh, and that includes 17 publications to date. So really involved in some research practices of recent times. Brady's also balanced that research with his clinical work both in the private sector, but also at the SN Football Club over the last four years at the AFL level and prior to that at the VFL level for a further two to four years. Uh, he's now the senior lecturer at the Notre Dame University in Fremantle and looking to sort of bring out some excellent new research into calf strain rehabilitation that he touches on throughout this podcast and something we'll be looking forward to seeing come out in the future months and years. Uh, personally, I've been lucky to work with Brady over the last couple of years, uh, and it was great to sit down and chat around. It was certainly his favourite topic, uh, being calf strain injuries. So, uh, I hope you guys enjoy this chat. Welcome, Brady. Thank you for having me, Nick. Mate, it's uh, it's a pleasure to be here and with you. And as mentioned in the introduction that I did, um, that you've re- recently, obviously, uh, completed a very labour-intensive study design where you, you know, interviewed a select group of international experts regarding the assessment, management and prevention of calf strain injuries um, as part of your PhD. And I guess uh, today was a little bit a uh, time with you to chat through that, I thought, and um, focus mainly around some of that rehabilitation, return to play and prevention aspects, um, but not just to only get the experts' uh, take on that because people can obviously read your paper, which is available and accessible online. Uh, but also to get some of your thoughts and um, from your experience and your knowledge to um, embed within this podcast. So looking forward to the chat, mate. Yeah, thanks very much. Looking forward to it as well. Now, uh, tell us a little bit about your journey. Uh, you've completed your PhD now, uh, where you're working previously at the Essen Footy Club, and, and now, uh, what are you doing now? So yeah, tell us your journey and uh, let the audience get to know you a bit. Yeah, so currently um, I'm a senior lecturer in musculoskeletal physiotherapy at the University of Notre Dame um, and have an adjunct position uh, at La Trobe University. Um, 
and am involved in sort of ongoing uh, projects related to primarily calf muscle strain injuries, um, as well as other soft tissue injuries. Um, and I guess prior to this position, um, clinically, um, I was working in uh, elite sport at Essendon. Um, concurrent to that, um, I was involved in research activities through La Trobe University uh, that culminated in me completing my PhD. Um, so I guess that experience was very much one of, yeah, combined exposure uh, with research involvement um, as well as uh, high-level uh, clinical activities. Lovely, mate. That sounds like a, a really great mix. Um, how are you find Perth and uh, anything else sort of on the horizon? Yeah, so really enjoying my time in Perth. Um, on a personal level, we're expecting uh, early next month, so that's, that's certainly something noteworthy for us. Um, and then from a professional point of view, uh, really excited about some uh, research projects that we have underway that are related to prospective evaluation of risk factors um, and different strength qualities and how they might impact susceptibility to calf muscle strains, um, as well as um, other studies that examine uh, residual impairments in individuals who've previously strained their calf and how they might tie into susceptibility to calf and other lower leg or foot injuries. Exciting times and congratulations uh, from all of us here on the pending arrival of Baby Green. It's very exciting. All right, so I guess super exciting sort of research to come from what you're doing there and what you're about to put out and, and stepping back to this study, which has been really popular that you did. It was, as I mentioned, the interviewing process around some experts. Tell us why you opted for this approach and uh, I guess how do you think the information will be beneficial for clinicians out there? Yeah, great question. Um... My supervisory team, uh, led by Tanya Pizzari and I, uh, really identified that there was a significant knowledge gap uh, in terms of how we assess, manage and prevent uh, calf muscle strain injuries. Um, the evidence base is really limited in those areas. And qualitative research can be a very powerful tool, A, to identify current best practice and B, to guide subsequent research in those areas and to sort of um, examine those areas um, in a way that is clinically meaningful. Um, so we thought that it was a really great opportunity to, to go down the qualitative research pathway um, to basically gather more information about an area that um, is perhaps not as well researched as um, a common injury like a hamstring muscle strain, uh, but certainly calf injuries are a significant burden um, in many sports um, and arguably are presenting a growing injury problem with consistent rates of recurrence um, and a prolonged risk of recurrence that extends for much longer than what you see for other common muscle strain injuries such as those affecting the hamstrings and the quadriceps. Okay, so from the information you gathered, uh, what were some of the consistent themes when it comes to identifying a calf injury from a mechanism of injury perspective and also the initial assessment such as your key subjective reports or the, some of the key assessment 
um, components such as palpation, for instance. Excellent. So beginning from a subjective point of view, um, it was very clear from the study that there are key subjective features of calf muscle strain injuries um, that are often associated with running related activities. Um, but you can also have calf muscle strains that uh, seem to manifest um, over time or accumulative um, and have more of a gradual onset or nil specific presentation. Um, and from this study and also some of the data that we evaluated from the soft tissue registry of the AFL, those injuries are certainly more related to soleus-based pathology versus gastrocnemius-related pathology. Um, so subjectively, based on what we're hearing clinically about how the injury has manifested, the mechanism involved, um, if there is a significant inciting mechanism, um, we could be thinking it's either a soleus or a gastrocnemius related injury, but if we're hearing that it's something that may not be strongly associated with a, with a known mechanism, we might be thinking it could be uh, more of a soleus-based pathology. Um, and then within the data that we evaluated from the uh, soft tissue registry as well, um, we identified that um, there are certain mechanisms within those uh, injury subsets uh, that are more common. For, exam for example, gastrocnemius injuries were more common during high intensity running activities um, and acceleration, which is certainly consistent with what we identified in the qualitative study and what the experts were reporting regarding the common mechanisms of gastrocnemius injuries. Um, and as mentioned, while soleus injuries are certainly common um, as a uh, single point in time occurring during running related activities such as steady state running and acceleration. Um, there's a large proportion of those soleus based pathologies that can be more gradual onset um, or they might just be a subacute presentation and that's certainly consistent as well with what the experts were reporting uh, subjectively from the qualitative study. And then I guess moving from subjective features into objective features, um, as mentioned, framing our expectations around whether it's a soleus or a gastrocnemius-based pathology, uh, we're looking at our key clinical uh, markers, such as uh, location and severity of palpation tenderness, uh, sensitivity to stretch and the position, whether the knee's flexed or the knee's extended. Um, and then also what we're identifying in terms of contraction. Um, initially, that can be isometrically with the knee extended versus the knee flexed, um, as well as in weight-bearing conditions, doing some double leg and single leg calf raising um, and identifying what the threshold is to elicit pain or a symptom of, of tightness. Um, and where that is during those contraction-based tasks. Um, and then from there, after we've done our palpation, tested our extensibility of the muscle tendon unit and done some contraction, um, we can be looking at plyometric capacity if appropriate. Um, and um, I would recommend if we're working through a plyometric assessment that it is uh, graded and systematic to identify the precise um, load requirement that is eliciting symptoms. All right, so 
taking that on board, and, and I know the paper mentions the, the shotgun, in quotation marks, gastroc injury, and we know those sort of um, you know, presentations may be a little bit more clear cut. Uh, I'm going to throw a clinical scenario at you here, and that is one of the, the calf injury that, uh, as per one of your papers, I think you can um, correct me, roughly 50% of some celial injuries in the AFL present with no inciting mechanism and, and will present see, the, the following days with sort of calf tightness or some degree of symptoms. Um, how do we manage those ones? So there may be, it may be a calf strain, it may be just sort of calf tightness, I guess, putting yourself in a position when you're at the sports club or in a clinic, how, how do we make that decision to either run them, train them, do we treat it like a muscle strain, do we just treat it as if it's a, it's a bit of tightness? Um, yeah, fill us in on, on your process and thoughts here. Yeah, great practical question. And I think first and foremost, um, our safeguard always to make a really good clinical decision is having a structured approach in our clinical examination that gives us the best information. Um, so moving from, um, yeah, examining our, uh, or moving from our tests of palpation tenderness and what we're identifying there, um, whether there is a specific uh, discernible location of, of pain or whether symptoms elicited with palpation um, are more diffuse in nature. Moving through our tests of range of motion and extensibility of the, the muscle tendon unit um, and if that's consistent, if there is a restriction, if that is consistent with what we're finding with palpation. Um, and then thirdly, when we do our contraction-related tests. Um, so if we're being perhaps more cautious, we can begin isometrically, or we can go straight to testing in weight-bearing conditions with double leg, uh, knees extended, double leg, knees bent, and then progressing on to single leg testing um, and identifying whether any symptoms are reproduced. If they are, whether they are consistent with what we're finding based on our palpation and our tests of extensibility, um, and then moving on to a graded plyometric workup where if at this point um, we have identified significant enough symptoms um, and the patient or the athlete's telling us that, you know, they're sore just walking around and um, that pain is significant, um, it mightn't be appropriate to, to go through a full plyometric workup but clinically, if we're at the point where, you know, we haven't elicited strong symptoms, we aren't really sure where they're at functionally and in terms of the pathology that might be there in their calf, um, it's certain benefic certainly beneficial to work through that plyometric workup um, before we're exposing them to the high loads that they'd encounter out on the training track or on the field. There's different ways of doing that plyometric workup. Um, from a really simple point of view, um, actions that are more vertically oriented um, are going to require uh, less rate of loading and less lengthening demands than actions that are more horizontally oriented. Um, so the practical application of that is doing submaximal vertical and vertically oriented plyos prior to doing horizontally oriented tasks like forward hopping, uh, broad jumping, um, forward hopping in series, things of that nature. 
Um, so I guess to this point, I've described systematic process moving from palpation, range of motion and tissue extensibility, what we can find in terms of contractile capacity, and then we've done our plyometric workup, and we're comparing our findings at each of these levels of testing, whether they're consistent or not, and whether it's um, identifying a location that we might sus be suspicious that there is a pathology. Um, and hopefully at this point, we've got a, got a good understanding of whether it's appropriate or not to send them out onto the field um, and expose them to a higher load situation, which would be, of course, running. Lovely, mate. Very systematic process. And I think it's a, it's a common situation and, you know, and it can be a difficult process to work through. So I think being really following your clinical system there would um, you know, keep our listeners uh, really in good stead to, to make a good decision from there. All right, Brad. So uh, we're going to just touch on, well, firstly, uh, and, and I guess briefly, not all calf injuries are soleus and gastroc. So and it's mentioned throughout the paper, what are some differentials that maybe we should just be aware of when assessing our patients? Yeah, so really good question. Um, you can have uh, acute plantaris injuries, of course. Um, you can have strains affecting the deep flexors and tibialis posterior. Um, so they certainly presented a far lower prevalence um, of injury presentations in the AFL data, um, and they were reported to be, yeah, uh, uncommon by the experts in the qualitative study. Um, so they're just some differentials to keep an eye out for in terms of acute muscle strains uh, within the lower leg compartment. Um, and then of course you can have pathologies affecting uh, different tissues that might masquerade as a calf strain, uh, but these are certainly less common. Um, and you're thinking about um, different symptoms arising from Achilles tendon pathology, um, symptoms arising from pure muscle overload, um, and there is the possibility, of course, of um, symptoms arising from bony stress presentations that could masquerade as a calf strain as well. Beautiful, some nice clinical tips to keep an eye out for. And, and I guess partly of where imaging may assist is the differentials, but more from your take and the experts take around imaging what what information can the imaging tell us that may guide or assist us with our um, prognosis and or of course diagnosis great so um, imaging is obviously very commonly utilized uh, in elite sport um, and primarily that's because it gives us a nice description of where the pathology is located um, and it can give us a description of the severity of that pathology. Um, we undertook a large study um, analysing the AFL data to work out the information that we get from clinical factors, so factors such as uh, players' demographics, how old they are, their ethnicity, their height, their weight, the position they play and so forth, um, versus MRI-related factors, so the muscle identified to be injured on MRI, the location of the pathology, um, and we mapped those to the primary locations of injuries within soleus and gastrox. So for example, within soleus, whether the pathology is located at the central uh, intramuscular aponeurosis, the lateral or the medial intramuscular aponeuroses, or the posterior aponeurosis, 
Um, and then moving further along at that location, how severe is the pathology? Um, and we graded the severity of disruption uh, from 0 to 100% um, of that structure. And so from that study, we found that injuries with aponeurotic disruption at that anatomical location, they were associated with a significantly longer time to return to play. So at face value, um, if you're seeing a pathology that does show evidence of a disrupted aponeurosis, um, that would suggest that it might take longer to reach functional milestones during rehabilitation and then finally return to play. Um, and that is certainly consistent with uh, data from other sports, uh, such as soccer and some of the work from the Spanish group. What we didn't do in our study was um, uh, evaluate ultrasound uh, classification. And there's certainly been some recent work from uh, Carlos Pedret um, that's proposing um, the utilization of ultrasound for grading distal medial gastrocnemius injuries. Um, and that could certainly have utility, especially around that distal muscle tension junction muscle tendon junction where you can get a good visualization of the tissue integrity um, so a few factors there but um, I think that that addresses the key points Nick all right Brad so, uh, so interestingly from your study there it'd be fair to say that imaging does guide our us on the ability to provide our athletes with a, a prognosis. So for those who often ask the question right at the start, when can I play, which is everyone, if they want to be really strict on knowing exactly when they can get back and, and provide the most amount of detail we can, you would advocate for imaging for most of those athletes? Yeah, really good question. So um, one thing that's unavoidable is that irrespective of imaging categorizations, there's really large variation in what you see in time to return to play, where within that data set, you have pathology that you would expect to be very mild. Um, and for whatever reason, athletes with that mild pathology based on a radiological classification are taking extended time to return to play. And conversely, there's situations where um, an athlete might appear to have more extensive pathology but their return to play is a lot sooner. So on face value, um, I think the findings of the study indicate that it can give us an, an expectation at baseline or an appreciation that this athlete might perhaps require a little bit more of an extended rehabilitation. But then the thing that's going to give us the best information about when their final return to play will be is how they're functioning and how they're progressing throughout the course of their rehab, how their strength is resolving, how their plyometric function and their elastic function is resolving, um, what they're telling us subjectively throughout a rehab in terms of how they're pulling up, whether they're having any lateness, latent soreness or tightness after they've had a heavy loading session and so forth. Um, and that's really sort of an evolving prognosis that we as clinicians develop over the course of a rehabilitation, which I think was really captured well in the qualitative study, whereby radiology can tell us about pathology at baseline, 
but it can't tell us about what happens during the rehab and how we might need to uh, modify our approach. Um, and that can be accelerate the approach or that can be slow the approach. Um, and the other factor that I forgot to mention as well that is associated with uh, prognosis um, in a significant way is what the athlete's telling us in terms of their mechanism of injury. So aside from the presence of aponeurotic disruption, whether the injury mechanism was a running related activity was actually the most strongly associated with a longer time to return to play. So what that means is the athlete has had a high intensity running, a steady state running, an acceleration or a sudden change of direction mechanism of injury that's resulted in a calf muscle strain. Um, those injury um, types resulted in longer to return to play, irrespective of how severe the pathology was on MRI. On MRI. Okay, so bringing all that information together, I'm gonna to throw a difficult clinical scenario or situation at you again. So presentation will be a running related mechanism of injury. Um, you've decided to image this athlete early on and it shows you some disruption of the lateral ponderosis, let's say. And you've moved through your battery of, of testing and loading over the next 10 days. And this athlete is looking tremendous. They are full strength, uh, hopping and demonstrating all performance tests as normal um, and getting through some early run sessions. They have now ticked off all their criteria, essentially what you would see to play or, or to fully train. Let's say for instance, on a Wednesday leading into a, a Saturday game, uh, they're really keen to play because they don't feel their calf and they, and they feel and look amazing. However, you as the physio know that they've had a mechanism of injury that means often a longer return to play. And we're talking here 17 days return to play if all going well. And a pathology on imaging. How would you navigate that situation in discussing his, uh, his or her chance to play at day 17? Yep, great clinical question. Um, and... Um, from a sort of um, uh, a broader perspective, looking at that situation, it's unavoidable that context is key. So we need to begin to um, evaluate the individual circumstances of this, of this athlete or of this patient. Um, are there demographics or uh, intrinsic factors about this player that might make us either more cautious or they might make us uh, more, um, uh, what's the word, uh, happier to push them along. And what I mean by that is, does the athlete have any known risk factors for a calf strain or a recurrence? Okay, so is this someone who's had a previous history of a calf strain or a previous history of recurrent calf strains? Have they had a previous history of other soft tissue injuries and recurrences? And the other factor we identified was that was associated with an early recurrence was whether you have a previous history of an ankle injury. And I think there are a few important mechanisms underpinning that as well that we can discuss later. Um, but at face value, this individual athlete's circumstances, do they have factors that are going to impact 
our ability to progress them through or are they going to make us think that we just need to uh, tread water a little bit and see how they go getting through a few consecutive sessions back with the group. So I think, yeah, individual context is key and then also context among the broader team um, and where that athlete sits in terms of their importance to the team or um, the team's uh, schedule and the stage of the season. Um, is this an injury that we can potentially, um, you know, we can get away with just gradually progressing load and banking a number of consecutive sessions because it is the pre-season? Um, or is it late in the competition season where there's an important game and we actually need to win to, to play finals? Um, all those context-related factors uh, it's unavoidable for them to impact our clinical decision-making. But I guess what I'm saying there is that it is uh, a team consensus and a team decision in those instances uh, where I'd certainly be engaging all stakeholders, being physio, medical, coaching staff and the athlete around what our eventual decision is. And that's certainly something that was identified in that evolving method of evaluating prognosis after a calf strain, uh, the flowchart from the qualitative study. Um, and so I think that, um, that answers. No, it a, does answer. It answers a, a difficult question that I think highlights, I guess what I was trying to get at is, is highlighting um, the balance between now you know the pathology on imaging and, and using your clinical skills to make a decision. Now, if you reverse the question and we didn't image and all of a sudden you've had a bit of a calf mechanism and you go and play, you'd probably play that person. And, you know, it might be a, a percentage increased risk because you're playing under a time frame that you don't know and you might get away with it, but you might not. But often sometimes I think the... The increased information we get from imaging is certainly helpful to give us uh, greater clarity on our decision making, but it can also impede those ones that may be just simple when you see them in a, in a clinic, for instance, and they roll through and they, they would often, um, you'd like to think, um, you know, get through the process well. So it, it, it highlights that, but you've answered it very well. So one for our listeners to mull over, I think, and, and, and embed in their own clinical practice. Yeah, definitely. Um, really good points there, Nick. And I think um, something that's important to highlight is that um, certainly uh, in the sport world and working with these um, athletes and patients, you do have scope to be conducting thorough rehabilitation. And so as identified in the qualitative study, um, that involved a sequence of introduction, introducing different uh, loading stimuli across the course of a rehab. And if that's really thorough and systematic, whereby we're gradually exposing the calf to uh, higher load magnitudes, so the size of the, um, the sort of force and the loads going through the calf, as well as greater rate of loading challenges, um, so the rate that that load's actually applied to the calf. Um, if we've been really systematic, hopefully if that player is going to be a player that might have an adverse reaction to load or might need to be um, sort of guided through a few um, sessions in sequence before we progress them along. Hopefully that's been identified in our thorough rehab processes and any testing that we might do 
um, to facilitate facilitate that decision making. Beautiful. So uh, I guess that will lead us into some rehabilitation. And and in the paper, there's a lovely schematic that basically it's a nicely uh, coloured arrows working from our baseline examination to our clinical evaluation. And I guess those two topics we've sort of covered off so far during the podcast. And then the next phase is during rehabilitation. And under rehabilitation, there's a number of sort of steps uh, from early loading to loaded strength, locomotion and loaded power. Uh, I'd love to sort of talk through those and break those down. So I guess um, if we can start with early loading, uh, what this might look like. Yeah, great. So ultimately, early loading um, begins at the threshold just below symptom onset. So what that means is that if we have a a severe pathology that can only tolerate uh, isometric loading at certain muscle tendon unit lengths, then that's the early loading that we go with. But if we have somebody who's quite functional and can be doing weight-bearing plantar flexion, i.e. calf raises and things of that nature, they can certainly be doing that as their early loading strategy. So that's a clinical decision based on the athlete's capacity, um, what we're doing for that early loading. Yep, okay. And any your go-to exercises, uh, I'm assuming, would be your, your you know early standard calf exercises. Is there anything that sort of steps outside of that in, in this phase? Yep. So um, I think it's important that we're doing things like um, adjusting knee position based on the pathology involved, but also ensuring that we're training in both a knee flexed and a knee extended position. Uh, We can add a rotational element as well if we want to bias medial versus lateral calf, if we think that's important based on where the pathology is. Um, And from the outset, if we can, we should be training both the vertical and the horizontal uh, propulsive capacity of the calf. Um, So what that means is that we're not just uh, pushing upwards and doing vertically Uh, oriented exercises but we do add a horizontal element Um, and I think that's important because we do get a greater eccentric and lengthening demand with the horizontal component and of course there is a large horizontal component as soon as we start to do functional activities such as our running our accelerations and so forth Um, so a few considerations there for our early loading strategies that then support our exercise selection as we move through the the higher load phases okay and and within the early loading are we purely doing that sort of thing or is there is there parts of also what you what's termed the locomotion and and directional work does that come through in the early loading or is that just part of loaded strengthening in terms of um, heavier load activities definitely more so with the uh, loaded strengthening phase Um, yeah okay so talk us through what are some components uh, that we that you or the experts would use within the loaded strength phase Okay, so we're beginning to add external load uh, utilizing seated calf raise machine or seated in the Smith machine um, and working on strength with the knee flexed as well as with the knee extended. Um, The actual load parameters used, so whether you're focusing mostly on maximum strength, on strength endurance, um, so anywhere from a a six repetition, eight repetition or 10 repetition scheme, should be aligned to the eventual running demands um, of the athlete, um, whether they're primarily involved in uh, short, 
sort of bursts of running versus prolonged endurance. Uh, but yeah, you're doing strengthening in knee flexed and knee extended positions. Um, if there's a directional component to the injury, such as it's occurred during acceleration or during change of direction and cutting activities um, or jumping, if it's a ruckman um, or something like that, um, you'd certainly be ensuring that you cover off on uh, training the force generating of the capacity of the calf in those different directions. Um, so it's prepared to what it will be exposed to on the field before it faces those demands on the field. Um, and in terms of horizontal uh, strengthening, I think from the outset, um, if we can be utilizing graded horizontal, horizontally loaded exercises, whether it's single leg good mornings into forward pushing, whether it's banded catch-ups, whether it's pushing a prowler, um, in the loaded strengthening phase, if that can um, sort of coincide with exposing the calf to heavier loads in the seated machine um, and with the knee extended, um, that'd be beneficial too. Yeah, lovely. Some really good tips out there. So it'd be really targeted with, I guess, some of your loaded strength. Uh, I think that the points you made there around the change of direction or the jumping would be really relevant to many different sports. Okay, so they're progressing through their loaded strength and they're reaching some of your, your, your sort of rough targets that you said would be aligned with the sport and you can maybe maybe touch on some general targets or strength benchmarks that you use um, before and then I guess take us into that next phase that you have there being uh, locomotion. Yeah, great. Um, one thing I wanted to say as well and this question sort of uh, leads in nicely um, is that we obviously have our uh, different contraction modes, e.g. our isometric capacity, our dynamic strength, so just moving through range, um, as well as our eccentric strength. Um, and fourthly, we have our capacity or our strength endurance capacity with just our run-of-the-mill single leg calf raise uh, for repetitions to fatigue at the wall. Um, and the evidence suggests that your level of strength across those four areas is not always strongly correlated. So how strong you are isometrically versus dynamically versus how many reps you can do for a single leg calf raise at the wall aren't always closely associated. And that's because they reflect different force generating capacities. I advocate uh, bearing in mind that the calf has really varied work demands ranging from instantaneous explosive work to prolonged contractile work across that whole spectrum. Um, the calf will need to sort of function and have capacity upon return to play. So when we're thinking about contraction modes, um, I think it's worthwhile to be developing capacities across each of those four areas. Specifically, if you look at the literature and you start to discuss something like isometric strength, like an MVIC, max voluntary isometric com contraction, uh, with the knee extended, uh, there's data that suggests athletes should be able to generate about 1900 newtons. Um, and with the knee flexed, it's a little bit less, more like 1600 newtons. And certainly, I'd be monitoring 
the resolution of strength in both of those positions isometrically over the course of a rehab uh, to ensure that it is getting back to either the athlete's baseline or it's getting back to a comparable level of what we would expect of an athlete if we don't have their baseline data. Um, for dynamic strength, so moving the load through range, for example, knee extended in the Smith machine for six reps or eight repetitions, um, a benchmark that uh, we've worked with in the past is working towards having about half of your body weight, if you can, on the bar. Um, so you're pushing up your body weight plus a half for six repetitions or eight repetitions. Um, and in seated position, you're working towards at least pushing up your body weight uh, as an external load marker. Yeah, lovely, mate. Some brilliant tips or, or brilliant uh, benchmarks and targets for, for everyone to work towards. Uh, once they've sort of moved through that, I, I guess that next phase, um, you know, the locomotion and that's, you know, what, what does locomotion mean and um, what are some ways that you sort of embed that within your rehabilitation? Yeah, great. So locomotion refers to the fact that um, the calf muscle tendon unit is involved in propelling the body uh, through space um, and there is what's referred to as the spring mass model um, that describes and explains the function of the whole leg um, to achieve that outcome. And ultimately, the function of the muscle tendon unit um, within the stretch shortening cycle uh, will call upon force generation of the contractile elements. It will call upon elastic energy storage and release um, and a nice uh, communication or transition of that energy between the elastic elements and the contractile elements. What we know is that that occurs um, in a different way than just doing a controlled, say, calf raise on a seated calf raise machine. The way that the muscle tendon unit will stretch, uh, store elastic energy, and then recoil, recoil to drive the positive work. So it's a different action of the muscle tendon unit. So bearing in mind that it's a different action, it can be beneficial as early as you can to systematically redevelop the locomotive action of the muscle tendon unit. Um, so I think it's beneficial to, as early as you can, be doing walking drills, walking upstairs, lunge walking, uh, arabesque to lunge walking, um, as well as um, elementary running drills and plyometrics to really hone in on this locomotive spring type function of the muscle tendon unit that we won't necessarily train if we're just doing our heavy strengthening. Okay, and you touched on some plyometric function there and, and both within the paper, it steps us through, um, I guess the importance of that and, and it's referred to as the loaded power plyometrics and ballistic exercises. Um, I guess this, this is all happening concurrently throughout the rehab, I, I, would, I would say. Um, what, what are some of these exercises looking like and, and what are we trying to get out of them and why are we doing them? Yeah, great. So as mentioned, um, we're doing these exercises to redevelop that spring function of the lower leg at face value. That's why we need to do them. Um, how we're doing them. So we can be doing um, run drills, 
field-based plyometrics. Um, to simplify exercise selection in this area, at face value, we need the calf to be able to do a high level of instantaneous output to match, for example, a sudden acceleration for a few steps. But we also need prolonged work of that muscle tendon unit over time. So we can select our plyos to develop an instantaneous maximal output as well as plyos that are training repeated contraction um, or repeated stretch shortening cycles, which I guess is more of an endurance component and a, a work capacity over time. So we, we can almost split that exercise selection of plyos in each of those two directions. And then as I mentioned, even at the start when we chatted around clinical exam, we can then match our exercise selection based on whether the plyo is more vertically oriented or whether it's more horizontally oriented. So within each of those arms, max outputs that are vertically oriented, max outputs that are horizontally oriented. So an example of those exercises would be, you know, a max single leg box jump for height, as high as you can. Horizontally, a max forward hop as far as you can, or a sequence of hop either stick or in series versus a sort of prolonged uh, work um, where if we're talking about vertically oriented plyos, they might be exercises such as single leg pogos on the spot, uh, submaximal single leg hopping, uh, allowing the knee to flex because I think it's important to do uh, both stiff knee and knee flexing plyometrics. Um, and then in terms of vertically, uh, sorry, horizontally oriented with prolonged work, we might be working towards being able to do bounding, uh, single leg bounding um, and plyos of, of that nature. So I guess what I've tried to describe there is just a bit of a systematic process to ensure that we're getting coverage across the whole spectrum of what the calf will need to be able to do. No, and, and broken down very well. Uh, which, which leads us to running. Um, everyone wants to know when can we run and both physios love to know some benchmarking criteria to run and um, obviously from your experience you would have some really good inputs but, and as well as within the paper it, it talks to uh, six rules of thumb as a general consensus to prescribe uh, with the prescription of running. Can you take us through um, those two aspects? So the, the decision when to run, uh, very topical and very interesting um, in that many physios around the world um, have perhaps been burnt by uh, the cases where they've pulled the trigger a little bit early and they've, they've let an athlete run and they've ran 500 metres and their calves tightened up or, you know, become painful and they've limped off the track and... Um, that's obviously a, not a situation that we want to be in. So I guess some of the early return to run criteria to allow somebody to run is perhaps from a bit of a risk aversion mindset um, where we don't actually want uh, the player to be limping off with a sore calf. Um, bearing in mind that the loads for the calf are different, even running at very low 
uh, velocities compared to if we're running at slow speeds after a hamstring strain. So conceptually, even though we might be telling somebody to go for a jog, that is a high load situation, particularly for soleus. Whereas if we're rehabbing the hamstring, the run of the mill grade one biceps femoris, running at a jog isn't obviously going to be a high load situation uh, for the hamstring uh, in that scenario. So what we were able to identify in the qualitative study is that um, to safeguard that decision around when to run, there's a few steps. First and foremost, ensuring that all of our clinical markers um, are progressing as they need to be. Um, and we're not seeing adverse responses and latent soreness from our strengthening exercises and carrying that into a first run. The individual should demonstrate a good level of single leg calf raise strength endurance at the wall in terms of repetitions to fatigue because there's perhaps no way around for any calf injury, it requires a foundation base level of uh, contractile capacity. Um, there are different numbers of repetitions that are deemed acceptable, but if the athlete's getting at least 20 or perhaps more like 25 to 30 repetitions, um, one second concentric to one second eccentric timed with a metronome, that'd be a really good safeguard that they do have the capacity to run. And then also submaximal plyometric capacity. So that means you don't need someone rehabbed to the point where they can single leg bound for 20 meters before you run them. Obviously those advanced plyometrics can actually be more demanding than what a first run might be for a calf. But certainly the individual needs to demonstrate that they do have uh, plyometric capacity. Um, in the paper we identified either doing a number of repetitions, so like 15 to 20 repetitions of submaximal vertical hopping, um, or you can time them and time them for what might be a comparable duration to their running sets, e.g. 20 or 30 seconds and see if they can actually do it on the spot without having any symptoms before you tick them off and say, yep, you're clear to run. Um, and then clinically as well, depending on the individual's context, you might ask them to do even more than that. So if it's a person that you're worried about based on their risk factor profile, their strength profile, so maybe they've, they've got a weaker uh, base or less capacity that they're starting from um, or if it's a, a pathology that you're worried about you might ask them to do more so you might require them to do more demanding horizontal plyo or you might ask them to do a loaded strength marker that is heavier for example seated calf raise of at least 70 percent of their body weight so that's all around the decision when to run. Um, and there was a second part there, Nick, I think of. Yep, it was uh, touched around the, the six rules of thumb that was used within, within the paper and around, I guess, that was around the running prescription. So certainly early, one of the rules of thumb relates to avoiding plotting. Um, and what that means is gone are the days of the first run after you've strained your calf, telling the athlete to go and jog five laps continuously at a slow submaximal speed 
or to go and run for two kilometers consistently as your first run. What is perhaps better practice is prescribing uh, sets and reps of some run-throughs at a self-selected comfortable running speed um, that the athlete can complete, report back to you with how they're going um, and you can really monitor their response to running across a set and across the session in a more simple way than if you just said, yeah, I want you to run consecutively for five minutes for me and report back to me after with how you're going. And I guess part of where this approach has arisen um, is related to that risk aversion or a little bit of the unknown regarding how the athlete might go with that first run and whether they are ready or not. Um, another important rule of thumb relates to uh, the day on day off approach early after they've started running. So that means not prescribing running on consecutive days, back to back days. Um, for, for certain sports, later in the rehab, it's unavoidable that athletes will need to go back-to-back uh, -back days and on occasion three or four days in a row. But certainly at the resumption of introducing running, um, day on, day off seems to be better practice because we get a better appreciation for uh, the calf's response to the running sessions and particularly for a soleus-based pathology that may not have symptoms that manifest until the next morning as a little bit of tightness or a little bit of awareness or, you know, a little bit of, I'm not sure if my calf feels different. Um, that just allows us to track and monitor um, more effectively. Another important rule of thumb uh, relates to when we actually do our strengthening. Um, and it perhaps should always be off the track or after the running session and never before uh, because we don't want to be taking fatigue into the running session. Um, running while a calf's fatigued when we're rehabbing it could be a situation that predisposes the person to recurrence. Um, so I'd certainly advocate either uh, post-running session or the next day. You could do your, your higher load strengthening and things. Um, so there are a few of the key key rules of thumb and and, and leading on to that uh, we've worked through some of the the running rehabilitation progressions and we're talking we're back to talking around return to play um, again referencing back to your paper it had a sort of a, a return to play clinical checklist so i'd encourage people to go and have a bit of a read of that um, but yeah do you want to run us through a little bit of that checklist in how you would do it and also how the expert do it, did it um, maybe a couple of the the key ones, I think it's a list of about 15 to 20. So what are the main ones for you? So I think um, fundamentally, from a subjective point of view, um, we should be covering off on, we're getting confidence from the athlete that they are ready. They're not reporting latent soreness, residual symptoms within a session or between sessions that might tell us that their calf has you know, a little bit longer of a rehab required before it's back to where it needs to be to return to play. Um, and then objectively, some of those fundamental clinical features. So we're not identifying any latent signs with our palpation, 
our tests of range of motion and extensibility of the calf muscle tendon unit. Um, and that can be non-weight bearing or weight bearing, doing things like a um, bent knee lunge test or a straight knee test at the wall. Um, we're not getting any feedback from our simple calf raise testing with the knee straight and the knee bent that the athlete either lacks capacity or is fatigued between sessions. So each of those fundamental clinical areas should be clear and clean and we're not getting a suggestion that they need to develop their capacity more. Then you as a clinician need to make a decision around which strength qualities are the most important for this athlete's sport and their participation in it. The qualitative study identified that it's unavoidable. You need a foundation of single leg calf raise strength endurance to demonstrate the calf has good work capacity over time. But then we start to talk about other strength qualities, which could be maximum isometric strength, dynamic strength, might be eccentric strength and yielding strength, especially in rugby cohorts um, and athletes that unfortunately sustain those quite extensive medial gastrocnemius injuries uh, in the scrum. Um, it could be a combination of um, strength across each of those areas. And then moving along to plyometric markers. And again, if we work from uh, our exercise selection framework, we can measure plyometric outputs to match how we've prescribed the exercise. So measuring things like um, our forward hops for distance, our forward hops in series for distance, measuring our reactive strength inde index on the force plate um, or any other power related attribute that might be important. In the background, of sort of collecting all of this data and monitoring really closely how that calf and how that athlete is going, we're keeping track of workload and load exposure in ensuring that A, the athlete's done enough, enough work to prepare them to return to play, in particular, the volume of work, but also if they've had a mechanism of injury like a sudden acceleration, have they actually had scope to adequately prepare to do that at, at max velocity and with repeated exposures? Um, and with their overall exposure as well, one of the key takeaways take from the qualitative study was that just ensure that the rehab process isn't too back-ended with volume, which is somewhat unavoidable, but it's just a comment on avoiding the situation where all the volume of running is concentrated right at the end of rehab because the athlete could then take a level of fatigue into their return match um, and that could predispose them to a recurrence irrespective of whether they're actually ready to return or not. So what I've described there is some fundamental clinical features, um, some data collection that we should do as clinicians based on strength qualities and, and power attributes. And then also as clinicians having an appreciation for the actual running related locomotive type workload that the athlete has done and whether all of those factors marry up and demonstrate, yep, they're ready to go.
Lovely, mate. Uh, so much great information there. And, and I mean, we'll start to we'll wrap things up there. And I, I think we could do a, a whole another podcast and, and more on obviously this, but also uh, calf injury prevention, which we'll, we'll leave for another time. Um, so, mate, really appreciate you jumping on board for the podcast. Um, we wish you all the best with obviously the, uh, the arrival of the newborn in the coming weeks and, uh, and to your wife, Steph, and also... Um, of course, further with that, with your career progression and, and your studies around the future calf um, aspects that you mentioned at the start that you're doing with further studies there at uh, Notre Dame, really looking forward to seeing all that come out, mate, and, and to further um, drive what we're doing um, at the coalface with our, with our calf injury management. So well done. Oh, thanks very much for having me. That's a pleasure, mate. All right, we'll speak to you soon. Thanks, Brady. <laughs>